Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 27, 2017, we talk with Cairo-based correspondent Sarah El Sergani about her article in the new WPJ winter issue headlined, Islands Apart, Why the Saudi-Egypt Alliance is on the Rocks. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided entirely by female editors, experts, and journalists. But first, this week's global winners and losers from Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group, international risk consultants. Hi, I'm Ian Bremmer. We got Trump presidency, week one, winners and losers, Mexico, loser, everyone but Lopez Obrador, who probably becomes next president. They're not happy with Trump. China, winner in that they have a lot of space to make up, but loser, U.S.-China relations getting worse. Canada, winner, Keystone Pipeline, they love that. They get some infrastructure spend. U.K., winner, Theresa May, coming here tomorrow, going to go well, long term, not so much. Middle East, got to be a loser, right? And that's not because of Trump, it's just the world's going to hell. And now this top news of the week. President Trump ordered an official investigation to back up his controversial claim with no evidence that more than three million cases of voter fraud kept him from winning the popular vote in November. Then he ramped up his crackdown on immigration with a ban on refugees from Syria and, for at least 30 days, from other terror-prone and mostly Muslim countries, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen. Not included, Saudi Arabia, source of much Islamist funding and a preponderance of the 9-11 suicide skyjackers. Trump also signed an executive order advancing his pledge to build a wall on the U.S. southern border, albeit with U.S. funds to be reimbursed eventually in some form by Mexico, despite its denials, perhaps with a tax on Mexican imports or withholding an equivalent sum from public or private funds otherwise meant for Mexico. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Thousands of people in the Egyptian capital Cairo protesting President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's decision to hand over two islands to Saudi Arabia. Cairo last week announced the uninhabited islands of Tehran and Sanafir will be demarcated as being in Saudi waters there at the southern entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba, 200 kilometers south of the Israeli city of Alat. Hundreds of Egyptians have been arrested as a result of that demonstration in Cairo last April and others since including a dozen protesters earlier this month as the controversial tehran Sanafri handover deal fought its way up the hierarchy of Cairo's top courts and political system. The issue both reflects and further threatens increasingly strained relations between Egypt and Saudi Arabia and underscores increasing divisions throughout the region over Islamic extremism, oil, and Israel. Cairo-based journalist and TV producer Sarah El Sergani paints the complex picture in the New World Policy Journal winter issue, cover line interrupted, written and edited entirely by women foreign affairs experts. Her article is headlined, Islands Apart, Why the Saudi-Egypt Alliance is on the Rocks. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Sarah El Sergani, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a benchmark. When was the last time that Egypt and Saudi Arabia seemed to be closest on key issues and approaches? And what would you say was the hallmark of that period in their relations? 
That would be before 2011. Um, both of them were under stable leadership um, that have been running the countries for a long time. And um, so you have Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, and you have King Abdullah in Saudi, and both were interested in keeping things calm. Saudi has always been a taboo topic in Egypt um, in terms of, like, the criticism was always muted. And um, they... Can, both of them mutually avoided um, rising or increasing or pushing tension. Um, so whatever they thought would head into a, an area or a direction of conflict, they would avoid that path completely and just decide to ignore it for the time being. Egypt's government has cited evidence that the islands in questions belong to Saudi Arabia historically, but you say the transfer really had more to do with a contemporary Saudi demand for at least symbolic sacrifice because of Cairo's increasingly divergent stands on Syria, Yemen, Iran, even Russia, despite significant Saudi financial aid and investment. Remind us of those foreign policy differences, starting with Syria, where Russia and Iran figure so prominently. So since 2011, 2011, Egypt has gone uh, through its own upheavals and has gone through un and has been under different leaderships, each with a different foreign policy. But since President Sisi took over um, and uh, the ouster of the Islamist presidency at the time, uh, Egypt has gone further away from the Islamists and towards established and military um, states. So we support now, uh, Sisi has declared that we as Egypt support the, uh, President Bashar al-Assad in Syria, as opposed to Saudi, for example, that says that it's any solution for the future has to exclude President Bashar al-Assad. Uh, Saudi is more invested in um, in the other in the rebel groups, particularly some of the more radical and Islamist ones, which Egypt completely disagrees with. Two votes on Syria in the UN Security Council also raised Riyadh Cairo tensions. So in October, there were two votes in the Security Council, both almost similar, but with key difference, with differences that has to do with the countries proposing them. So we had a French resolution, and that was backed by Saudi, and we had a Russian uh, resolution. Both were vetoed out, uh, and Egypt had voted voted for the second resolution, which was the Russian one, and it was a resolution doomed for failure. It wasn't um, no one expected it to pass at the time, um, so it was a harmless vote. But for Egypt to vote for it um, without Saudi's consent or without Saudi's support and against the support, against the wishes of Saudi Arabia, um, that led um, to very pronounced criticism from the Saudi um, ambassador in the UN immediately right after the meeting. And that's not unprecedented, but it's new in that time. Um, Generally, they kept the criticism of each other um, more muted behind closed doors, but it was made to the media, and Egypt had to respond in a sort of um, explain itself and try to contain this disagreement. Say more about Saudi disappointment with Egypt's less than wholehearted help in the fight against rebel forces in Yemen and the thinking in Cairo behind that stance. So Yemen has always been a sore point between the two countries. Back in the 60s, uh, President Gamal, the late President Gamal Abdel Nasser supported the, diff the other side of the civil war that Saudis had supported at the time. And it was one of the worst um, 
points of and times of disagreements between the two countries. And the, the civil war in Yemen, which Egypt in the 60s that Egypt had contributed to uh, financially and with uh, troops on the ground, is one of our uh, dark spots in history. No one wants to get that repeated. So when Saudi launches offensive in Yemen. Egypt sent a message of support, said it's going to protect, it said it's going to have its navy protect um, uh, the Red Sea um, and the passage of the Red Sea near Yemen, but it did not provide troops on the ground. And that and this lack of forceful support and full support for its first um, of the first war that came under King Salman definitely put a dent in the relations um, and and proved to Saudi that Egypt, which had relied on its financial support, is not willing to present something in return when needed to. And that has set the tone for for all the disagreements that came to the forefront later on. You mentioned King Salman. Uh, this is part of a generational change in Saudi leadership uh, that seems to be behind a lot of this uh, to some degree. What's the dynamic there? It's not just, it's not the king, it's his son. So uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is the deputy crown prince, is the one, and also the, for, the defense minister, is the one that launched the offensive in Yemen. And under their leadership, they they have changed the Saudi outlook and the Saudi way of handling regional politics. Instead, and this is what we what I cover in the article is um, through one of the dip, Saudi diplomats telling me that instead of waiting and being patient like King Abdullah did, now both of them are saying if we want to do something, we're going to do it. We're not going to wait for anyone, and people can join later on. The um, so this, this ends the quote. And um, the feeling everyone has, or the understanding that everyone has, is now we're more into an aggressive po um, policy, uh, more decisive decisions. And this is what creating um, the tension in the relations, because it's not what Egypt has expected or experienced from its long history of relations with Saudi. And, definite, and, Saudi, and on the Saudi front, they are looking at things like we changed, Egypt changed, and everyone should follow suit. How does this all impact the struggle for influence in the region between the Sunni states and Shiite Iran? So Saudi, which sees itself as a leading um, regional power, um, sees the enemy in Iran. So Saudi Sunni and Iran is Shia. And Saudi's interventions in the region is usually, is, can, can be seen through that line. Uh, it, um, it supports the Sunni groups or the Sunni governments against the, their Shia rivals. Um, Egypt, on the other hand, sees things differently. It sees things through uh, stability, um, military, and antagonism to, to anything that is Islamist. So the lines, everyone, it's not a clear um, path where you have people standing on either side. Um, on either side, it's actually several paths that cross lines, and this is why you find one state um, supporting a group in one country and supporting uh, its rival in another country. It just there's no clear map where you can draw things. Except, and the clear I think could be like the Saudi-Iran rivalry.
To what degree do Cairo and some other states in the region see uh, Saudi Arabia's targeting of Islamic extremism as hypocritical, given that Saudi sources have long funded the ultra-conservative strain of Wahhabism linked to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and, and their ilk? Well, this is something that you see across the board. It's not just Saudi. Um, a lot of countries, including a lot of governments, including Egypt, do not see the support of certain ideas as the path that leads them to extremism. So Saudi has funded a lot, um, a lot of uh, groups and movements around the Arab world, and as you can see inside Saudi itself. Um, it's, it has supported the rise of ideas that are more conservative, ultra-orthodox in some people's views, um, and um, that eventually um, normalizes the idea of extremism, the radical uh, explanations and interpretations of Islam that lead to the rise of the violent and radical groups elsewhere. And, and you can also argue the same about Egypt, where there isn't enough efforts to curb certain ideas that might seem normal to some people, but are the first step, if not the first hundred steps, towards the adoption of um, radical ideas, extremism, and violent um, and militant uh, groups. Now let's look at the bundle of Saudi investments and grants that came along with the uh, proposed island swap. What were the key components and, and worth how much to Cairo? Well, there is, that's a mystery because um, throughout, uh, since 2013, since the ouster of the Muslim Brotherhood president and the takeover of authority by the military and then the election of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Egypt has received um, a lot of money from the Gulf, a lot of assistance, not just from Saudi, but from other Gulf countries with very little transparency and monitoring about the amount of the money received or the amount of aid received and how it was spent. There is an estimate that we have that around a total of $30 billion in cash in the span of three and a half years. But this is as much as we know. Um, there are, this is only the cash that we can account for. There was assistance in fuel. Um, there were other types of assistance that people on both sides are critical of. Um, in Saudi, they see it as, uh, as the government investing in a country that has proved ungrateful and unwilling to, uh, to come forward to help when needed. And in Egypt, with Sisi's critics, they see it as Saudi uh, supporting a, a dictator or supporting a strongman um, and putting in money that future generations would have to pay for eventually, whether in cash or in favors, and um, that they didn't benefit from. Uh, on the Saudi side, also, you note anger uh, over this financial support uh, because of uh, falling oil revenues, forcing a cutback in government largesse uh, to Saudi citizens themselves. Exactly. And this is, and uh, there are more austerity measures happening in Saudi since I've, brought, I've written that article. And um, 
the frustration has grown more, but so did the criticism and the response to it of Egypt. So when I started working on that on this article, um, the word I was hearing that the frustration among Saudis for the um, aid the country is giving to Egypt. Um, so when the problem started and the tension started coming more to the public eye, uh, away from the diplomatic um, um, discussions and uh, closed doors, we saw the criticism on TV. So we had two academics on Saudi TV, um, this very dismissive in Egypt in a language that we did not, that Egypt was not used for, saying that whoever you buy with rice sells you for fool, which is beans. So, so they were referencing um, a leaked, an alleged recording of Sisi. Uh, that was he, in which he was talking very dismissively about Saudi money as if it is just like rice in, in reference to abundance. And they were saying that um, whoever you buy with rice, as in like you give money, will sell you very cheaply with food, which is the cheap breakfast meal known among Egyptians. So it, it, it signaled um, a more critical tone um, and sometimes um, uh, offensive tone in Saudi and in Egypt um, and I think and that was bringing the issue uh, that was and that was worsening the um, uh, the relation sorry and that was uh, <laughs> sending the relation into the wrong direction away from the ability of the lead of political leadership in both countries to contain them there have been Saudi sticks as well as carrots for Cairo, notably a halt in oil supplies. Do you see that more as pressure or, or necessity as Saudi oil revenues and reserves diminish? It is both. Um, it's never one thing or the other. Definitely Saudi, which gave, this, gave Egypt this favorable oil deal with very little or almost no interest, um, was willing to just suspend the deal when around the time when there was a lot of problems with Egypt. And what the word on the street is, it all had to do with the islands. Because if everything else was failing, Egypt was not willing to deliver in Syria, Yemen, um, and Saudi, which uh, whose leadership needed a political win, a regional win, especially that it's with its intervention and uh, in Syria um, was not also working, it needed the the islands, even though they at the end of the day they provided for a symbolic win they're not exactly uh, they did they did not have the history of conflict between both countries. And Egypt um, found itself, or at least its leadership, in a position where it, the sacrifice of two rocky islands of its uh, coast could just solve issues or bring the tension down at that time being. And, and this is why it, it comes back to the, um, to the islands, where the government is the one arguing that the islands are Saudi, and the Egyptian people, Egyptian lawyers, are taking this this matter to the court. And the administrative court has actually ruled that the islands are Egyptian and annulled the deal that the government had struck with the Saudi government. 
It's interesting because the deal, you say, actually also illustrates the key middleman's role that Egypt can still play between Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel. Exactly. Um, so the the islands, because uh, the Tehran island, which is one of the two islands, it borders the Tehran Straits, and this is the only path, uh, naval pathway uh, that leads to Jordan and Israel, and they have been part of the uh, peace agreement that Egypt has with Israel. So when the islands are transferred to Saudi, Saudi becomes part of the agreement, um, or at least it is required to declare how it's going to um, manage the straits. And Saudi said from the very beginning that um, it um, intends to respect all international agreements, which is a reference to the peace treaty. And Israel said it had it was consulted on um, uh, on the deal. This, even though there are no official relations between Saudi and Israel, we can see that this is one of several signs of cooperation between the two, or at least communication. We've seen former official Saudi officials visiting Israel. Um, Israel and Saudi are in agreement about the threats in the region. They both see Iran as an enemy. Um, they both see ISIS um, as a threat. And so this could change um, the sort of communication, whether open or behind closed doors between Saudi and Israel and the islands, could provide the legitimate reason for such communication. Beyond uh, Saudi saying they will respect international agreements and, and in effect permit safe passage by Israeli ships around the islands, uh, some opponents say uh, Israeli security forces are even going to be on the islands as part of the deal. That we haven't heard. It's, um, um, there is no transfer of power to Israel when it comes to that deal. Like It was consulted on it, but it's not part of it. Uh, Saudi, as, as Saudi said, it will respect the deal, which means that it will ensure free movement of ships through the straits. Um, whether or not Israel uh, would have troops on the island is something that would be discussed or would be known later on when or if Saudi gets control over the islands. Because so far, there is a problem in Egypt. The courts, the judiciary, has obstructed the deal. And the government, even though with a standing ruling, the government of Egypt, even though there is a standing verdict from a court, an Egyptian court, um, halting the deal, has moved the deal to the parliament. So the government is still pushing through to give the islands to Saudi while um, other state institutions within Egypt are trying to stop the deal and cancel it completely. So we're still in a period of flux, much like the region, and we're trying to figure out as we go. Beyond the street protests, talk about the extraordinary support and fundraising to pay the fines of demonstrators whose jail sentences had been overturned, and what it says about the current power of public opinion in Egypt. 
So since 2013, and since Egypt passed a law that uh, made demonstrations almost impossible and um, any act of street action led to either prison or killing or injuring of, the, of uh, demonstrators, uh, we've um, street action have lost steam, have lost power. Uh, they've become like uninfluential at all. Uh, but for some reason, the idea, uh, the rallying around the islands has led to revival of street action. And even the people that did not go down to the streets were willing to pay hefty fines to get those who were imprisoned for protesting. It, it showed that this issue specifically, not the issue of rising prices, not the issue of kill, mass killings or sentencing uh, hundreds to death in courts, none of that could rally people as much as the islands did. So we had one of the cases that involved protesters involving 47 people and uh, their sentence was first set um, at, like, to, they were first sentenced to five years in prison and through an appeal that was taken down to a fine of 100,000 Egyptian pounds. That might not seem a lot when you convert it to dollars, but it's a lot in Egypt for Egyptian money. That was about 4.7 million Egyptian pounds. And a group of activists managed to collect all of that money in just two weeks. They were themselves surprised by this. And uh, some rally this, explain this by the, uh, the feeling of support people had for the protesters, for the issue of the islands. And others um, hope that would be that mean a revival in street action. We haven't seen that revival yet, so my bet stays on the fact that a lot of people felt that they needed to contribute to that um, cause that they felt strongly about, even though they, even if they didn't take to the streets themselves. And that indicates something about how Egyptians feel about that specific issue. But on the other hand, there are, there are other government supporters who want to toe the government line and promote it and, um, or at least justify what others see as an embarrassment for the government to argue for, this, for the Saudi, to, for the, and others who want to support the government argument that the islands are Saudi by just amplifying that argument. Um, so there is a bit of tension within the society, but it's leaning. Um, but the, I, there is a tension within the society, but there is um, an inclination that you can see through that case and through the money that was collected towards supporting the Egyptian uh, nature of the island. So what's your guess? Uh, what does President el-Sisi risk by accepting any final judicial ruling and popular sentiment against the transfer or going ahead with it anyway? Well, he's in a bind because he has to give something to his Saudi allies. They have come through to him uh, with financial aid and uh, fuel assistance in, at the time when Egypt most needed it, before, right before his election and through the first years of, of his term. He, and because he is not willing to contribute troops or in other parts of the region, he has to give something. But at the end of the day, he is risking his own legitimacy, the core um, 
of his legitimacy, which he is risking the essence of his legitimacy. At the end of the day, this is a military man. He quit the military and ran for election right away. And the military in Egypt is rooted in the conviction that the land is sacred. And for, to see the former defense minister, the current president, concede land so easily without even, say, uh, resorting to international arbitration was, of, was shocking to many people, including some of Sisi's supporters. So he has to navigate this. One way is to say that it's uh, that, like to explain it to either the people or the uh, Saudi government by saying it was the court that uh, ruled that or it was the parliament that said the islands are Saudi. He could absolve himself of the responsibility by delegating the decision, by giving the decision to someone else. So we're waiting to see that. But either way, he is in a tough position. Around the region, you note fears of instability in Egypt, including an extremist, a possible extremist takeover, far more menacing than the Muslim Brotherhood election victory of 2012, and a flood of refugees to follow, all of which makes it hard for the Saudis and other neighbors to let Egypt fail, whatever happens with Syria, Yemen, uh, Tehran, or Sanafir. So where do you see all this going? We are, both of the countries, not just like Egypt and Saudi, are going through their own changes and upheavals within, um, within the population and on the leadership level. Um, it's adding too many variables to the equation to predict a specific scenario. Egypt is going through a tough economic crisis and it definitely needs the help, but it could, um, but maybe not the same help it's been getting. Maybe it needs investment and long-term um, support that's not just that's not just aid. Um, Saudi, at the, um, on the other side, is also redefining its foreign policy, where it stands. It's going through its own economic crisis, and it's uh, trying to um, reinvent its domestic um, and economic policies uh, with its own the changes and the push within the Saudi gov within the Saudi population for um, uh, one side is pushing for more lenient uh, social and religious rules, and others uh, and others are uh, campaigning for a more stringent um, and to maintain and others are campaigning to maintain the same stringent religious rules. So there are changes on both sides that's making it very difficult to predict exactly how the variables will lead to a specific future and specific um, uh, strength or, um, or, or how the relationship between the two countries will be shaped. Uh, there are analysts that would point to the long history between two, the countries and the fact that they need, still need each other within the region and that what we're, going, what we're looking at is merely a redefining that both of them are redefining the relationship, but are not. We're not going to see um, Egypt and Saudi in a war or in um, or in a complete disagreement over everything. There is still mutual interest on both sides to find a common ground, but maybe on common grounds with better conditions for both of them, and that would take time, especially that with Sisi in power and Prince Mohammed bin Salman in power, as they both work their positions within their own countries and also within the region.
and I guess deal with the whole changing economy of the region because of oil reserves, oil prices. Uh, people don't, neither side has the, all the money that they had before to do what, uh, what the leaders wanted to do. Exactly. Economy is, but economy is only one part of it. It's not just about the economy. It's about um, the aspirations of both populations for um, change, for better lives, um, for better social conditions, um, for better economic conditions, um, uh, for dignity, for transparency. Um, so they're demanding more of their leaders and this is what we saw in the criticism within Saudi media and within Saudi population when the Egypt-Saudi relations went sour and their disagreements were public and also we saw in Egypt with the demonstrations that protested the sale of the islands. Um, they demanded um, um, transparency. They wanted to know how things are being managed and how the future generations are going to uh, pay or manage what the current leaders are doing or um, or what are the deals that are being struck behind uh, closed doors. They know at one point that everything is going to be or the responsibility will be on future generations uh, to either manage the problems others uh, um, to manage the problems that the current leaders made or to benefit from the agreements that they made. So there is the, the, the variables that we're seeing are not just limited to the leadership but had to do, has to do with the um, population and the societies they are governing as well. Sarah Sergeni, thank you. Thank you for having me. Sarah El-Sergani is a Cairo-based journalist and TV producer whose work has been carried by CNN, Al Monitor, and The Guardian. A non-resident fellow of the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., her article for the winter issue of World Policy Journal is headlined Islands Apart, Why the Saudi-Egypt Alliance is on the Rocks. After we spoke, Egypt's higher administrative court annulled the agreement to turn Tehran and Sanafir over to Saudi Arabia. Experts downplayed chances of the government appealing to yet another high court or to parliament. Three other possibilities were renegotiation of the deal, international arbitration, or joint Saudi-Egyptian projects on the two islands. Also featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the future of feminism in China, on the brinksmanship of Vladimir Putin, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.